And uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get in the book of Revelation. And uh, if you guys are new here, welcome. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors, and we are kind of going through the book of Revelation. We started this several weeks ago, and we're looking at kind of the second section in the book of Revelation that really is a little bit of a shift of uh, momentum in the book. Uh, it starts out, book of Revelation chapter 1, with regard to a prologue. Uh, John writes, and then by the time we get to chapter 2 and 3, it shifts a little bit because what we have now are teachings or they're letters that are written by John through Jesus. Jesus actually dictates these letters to John. John writes them down. And then they get redistributed to seven different churches. So in chapter 2 and 3, which is where we're at right now in chapter 2, we're looking at the section in which Jesus writes seven letters to seven churches Some of these letters are good, meaning they've got good, commendable things in which Jesus is recognizing them for. Uh, Other of the letters are more of a rebuke, and they carry a very stern type of a tone. Uh, The letter that we're going to be looking at today tends to carry a little bit more of a stern tone in it, because Jesus basically starts the book by saying, hey, I have a sword in my mouth. (laughs) And when Jesus says, I have a sword in my mouth, it's probably because he's pretty serious about what he's about to say. So that's what we're going to be looking at here this morning. So what I want to do before we even jump in, I want to pray. And ask God to just begin to speak to our hearts so that as we begin to look at this, that God will already begin to sort of work in our minds. And as we read through it, as we study it, and as you take the flyer that you have, or at least convince me that you're going to take it home and study it and read it. And let those questions kind of sink in your heart. And the reason why we do that is because we really want you guys to be in God's word. Letting God's word kind of penetrate your heart. So with that, let's pray. And then we'll get to work at this uh, letter to the church in Pergamum. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask you right now that you would speak to our hearts. That you would just open our eyes. God, we want this morning to not just simply again be about information we want it to be revelation that transforms us and changes us God we just recognize that like the city of Pergamon we are a a church living in a city living in an environment living in a culture that has so many different voices and offers so many different promises that run similar to the promises in the gospel but are counterfeits God, so we, we find ourselves easily tempted and easily swayed to buy into these voices. So we ask you, God, right now that you would help us, equip us with the ability to be able to discern between the genuine and the counterfeit. So God, we commit ourselves in your hands. We pray as well that you would reveal sin to us that would just keep us or prohibit us from learning and growing. God, give us humble hearts that as we hear your word, that we would be able to be quick to repent from areas in our lives that need to be repented from and to turn to you, Jesus, to love you, to serve you, to be the church that you desire for us to be. Lord, would you just have your way in molding us and sculpting us and shaping us to be the people that reflect you. So we give you this time in your hands. We ask all these things in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. We're going to read Revelation chapter uh, 2, beginning about verse 12. On down about verse 17, then we'll get to work at this passage here. It says this. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone. And a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I'm going to take you guys to uh, the city of Pergamos. And I want you guys to be familiar a little bit with what's happening there. And a little bit of the sort of the cultural nuances around the city. I think that will set a little bit of a context for us so that we understand. I think some of the things that Jesus is addressing in this letter to this uh, city. Or the church that's within the city. So the next thing I want you to take a look at in terms of a, a, a map here on the slide 
Uh, some of you guys are already familiar with this. If you're not, I want you to be a little bit familiar with it because this is where we're writing this letter to. It's to the city of Pergamum. If you see that big bright red arrow, it's pointing directly to the city of Pergamum. It's about 130 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. It's uh, pretty far north and west, or east, I should say, from the city of Ephesus as well as Smyrna. And it's, uh, it was actually the capital of the ancient uh, area of Asia. So if you think about it this way, Rome, this massively vast empire, uh, had sort of two kind of main capitals. The main one to the west was Rome, obviously. And then to the east, it was Pergamum. It would later shift at some point to Constantinople, but for now, this is where it's at. Um, this particular city of Pergamum was actually given a special right because it was the main capital representing all of Rome's interests throughout all of Asia Minor or modern day Turkey. It was given a special privilege and the special privilege that it was given was called the right to the sword. That basically meant that they were allowed to exercise any type of capital punishment in the stead of or in the place of Rome itself. So that means... That if there's some sort of issue that they needed to rule out, some sort of riot they needed to squelch or crush, they didn't have to write back to Rome to get permission to figure out what to do. They could do anything they wanted to do, basically, that Rome themselves would have done. And this was a right granted to them by Rome itself, by the emperor of Rome itself, the Caesar. So as we go on, I want, to take, I want you to take a look at the next slide. We're going to take a look at a few items with regard to this. Um, we see here this particular city... Um, in, uh, called Pergamum, and what I want you to notice here in terms of the layout, you see this really large out, outcropping, this very large mountain. This is actually called an Acropolis, which was just basically a high spot, a high area in an ancient city. These are very significant, especially in ancient cultures, pagan cultures especially. They would always look for the high places to build their temples on, and it was no different in the particular city of Pergamum. They used this this particular mountain to build all sorts of temples and altars upon it. Uh, one of the most uh, obviously preeminent things that you see within this particular city carved into the side is this amphitheater. And it was carved into the side of the mountain. In fact, in the ancient city, it was not a very large amphitheater. It's probably around 10,000, which is actually pretty small compared to the ones that we saw in Ephesus, as well as Smyrna. But significant in that it was very steep. And you can see that it was literally just carved into the side of the mountain, very steep. You would not want to sit in the bleacher seats in this and accidentally trip on your way back from getting a hot dog. Not good. And, you, and so what you see here is you see this long road. This would have been kind of filled up with all sorts of stoas and different types of uh, columns. And it would have been uh, right here, obviously, that whatever type of actor or musician would have been, they would have played up there. And if you were sitting in those seats, you would look out into this area. Back in the day, it did not have any of this. This is actually the modern-day city um, called Bergama, um, just to the south of this particular city that's now in ruins, Pergamum. And, um, but back in the day, it probably would have been all sorts of uh, fields uh, growing like grapes and different types of produce because it was an agrarian culture. Um, on the mountain you see right here, there's a little ruin, and this would have actually been the foundation of the temple, or I should say the altar to Zeus, which we'll look at in a minute. So take a look at the next slide. Um, this basically is looking at the city, so the picture that we were just looking at, we were standing literally right here looking down this particular way, so the city of Bergamo is down here, but as you look at this, you get a little bit of a better picture as to what this would have looked like. That's the same amphitheater you see, that's sort of the, the structure that would have been built. These would have been various levels, uh, you would have had, these would have been homes for like uh, aristocracy, people that were well known, renowned, people that had a lot of money. This right here was the actual temple to, or the altar of Zeus, and some people actually believe it was probably one of the main reasons. If you notice, it's actually the highest spot in the entire city. So if you walked into the city of Pergamum, one of the very first things, obviously, that would catch your attention is this very large structure on the very highest level in the entire city, overlooking the entire city, which was the altar of Zeus. Um, then you got various other um, structures that are here that could have been libraries and things of that nature. So that's what I want you to notice with regard to that. It's interesting because the name Pergamum actually comes from two Greek words, um, uh, per, and then gamos, uh, the word gamos, we get the English word, uh, or, the, the, or the Greek word to marry. We use that in the English like uh, polygamy or monogamy, which means to marry, marry many, marry one. Um, it's the word marry. And then per is the idea of advancement or uh, elevation. And I think the idea that's sort of carried behind the very name Pergamos 
is sort of this notion that to marry something, to whatever that something is that you're going to marry, would actually bring about sort of an advancement, would bring about an elevation, uh, would bring about some sort of a, you know, either a social or financial benefit to you. And what you need to understand is in the ancient world, actually really in all of the world, pretty much most of history, people never married for love. I know that doesn't make for very good movies and novels, but the idea of people actually getting married because they love somebody is sort of more of a modern type of a idea. The concept of actually marrying somebody for the sake of benefit is, is what has been sort of more in the forefront throughout all history. And the same was true in this ancient city. And the idea behind marrying somebody or marrying something for the purpose of benefit or advancement was very common. So what you find here sort of in the city is in the very name itself you have this idea that connotes um, to marry something promises advancement. To become one with something also promises the ability of elevation or promotion. Get that idea. And what you end up seeing sort of in the text that Jesus writes to this group of people is that this seems to be the temptation that they were struggling with. Is this notion, this idea that to marry something to be joined with something, to be united to something, actually could provide benefit that really doesn't always provide the benefit that somebody would expect it to provide. Okay, I want you to take a look at the next slide. What we're going to do now is we're going to try to ask a question here. And what Jesus does in the very first portion of the text, he says, you know, here I'm writing this letter to you guys. I have a double-edged sword coming out of my mouth. We'll look at it in a moment here. But then Jesus goes on to say that you guys dwell where Satan's throne is. And then later on he goes on and he says, you know, faithful, my, my faithful servant Antipas, who died where Satan's throne is. So Jesus mentions twice in this letter that whatever it is about the city, that this city is unique in that it dwells where Satan's throne is. And a lot of scholars have sort of tried to figure out, like, what does that mean? You know, what does it mean to dwell where Satan's throne is? And everybody has an idea. And, uh, I want to try to explore some of those with you because I want to make sure that we understand it because obviously it does play into the text. Jesus obviously mentions it. So I want to at least try to give it a, our best shot to try to understand what this means. And so some have thought that maybe what it means is the idea of dwelling where Satan's throne is has to do with the multiple temples that were there in the ancient city of Pergamos. There were all sorts of ancient temple sites. It was known for all sorts of paganism and temple sites, but also because it was sort of the center of the ancient Roman Empire there in the east, there was a lot of imperialism that was going on there, meaning, you know, strong nationalism. Everybody was all about Caesar there. And we'll look at some of these. So the first thing I want you to kind of notice that was significant about the city in terms of maybe why it was called Satan's Home, the next slide we'll take a look at is perhaps because it was the site of one of the largest ancient temples, or I should say altar, because it was not a temple, an altar devoted to the god Zeus. Uh, Zeus was sort of the chief god. He was the god of gods. And uh, it's fitting, obviously, for a pagan city to have a temple or an altar devoted to this guy Zeus uh, that was in a very prominent type of location for people to see. Um, What you'll see down here in the lower right-hand corner, just aside of this statue of Zeus, this is actually um, the the actual build-out of the temple itself in Berlin. I'm told that you can actually go to Berlin and you can see an actual life-size monument of or reconstruction of the actual altar devoted to Zeus. And what I'm told is that the way this thing is sort of shaped is that it's shaped kind of like as a seat. It's kind of like an altar. Like if you were a big, massive giant, you can sit down on it. It was like a throne. So some have thought, scholars, that you know maybe this is a reference to this massive altar on top of this mountain there in Pergamos. Uh, perhaps is the altar that would give the idea that it's Satan's throne. Okay, the next slide, what you're going to see is perhaps maybe Zeus, but then also to maybe the uh, cult of Dionysus. Dionysus was one of the preeminent gods that was worshipped in the city of Pergamos. It's important to note this because obviously if you lived back in that city, if you were either a Christian or a non-Christian, you would no doubt be affected by the worship of Dionysus. It was one of the preeminent cults uh, to be worshipped in that, in that city. Uh, Dionysus was the god of joy. And therefore, it's kind of, uh, it's not too, that much of a stretch of the imagination to realize that he's also recognized as the god of wine. So you can see him right here holding a big old, you know, stack of grapes. 
And it was also significant because in the region, they probably had all sorts of, a similar, very similar climate to San Luis and the region on the central coast. So there's all sorts of grapes that were being grown. And so let's say if you were somebody producing grapes, you grew grapes, or you were kind of in terms of uh, the, the, the business of creating wine or making wine, you'd pray to Dionysus, or another name for him is called Bacchus. You'd pray to him, you'd devote your, your time, your energy, your worship to him, you'd bring sacrifices to him. And the way that they would do this back in the day is you would go to the, 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 the priests or the priestesses down there and you'd worship. You'd offer sacrifices. But the way that they would do this, they had actually these like little stations, these little areas that you would walk into and you would actually drink alcohol. You'd drink wine. In fact, you'd drink so much wine that you'd get drunk. Uh, and be, you viewed it as, I'm drinking Dionysus' wine and I'm getting joyful off of Dionysus' wine. I'm worshiping Dionysus. It was the idea. And as you would get really drunk, they would lay you down inside of these like little areas inside the temple and they would feed you flesh from an animal like actual like raw beef from an animal now the sacrifices of these animals they would kill these animals and they would flay them and cut them up in like little pieces of tri-tip and you'd lay down and you would eat raw meat and the idea of eating raw meat was sort of inciting kind of this animal passion in people and what would happen with the worship of Dionysus literally is that in the hills surrounding the city of Pergamos there's all these stories that women would literally run around naked, singing songs, dancing, and men would go out after them, and they would have sex. They're out in the, sort of in the hills around the city. In fact, we're told according to history that the worship of Dionysus got so out of control that Rome actually issued a mandate saying, no more worship of Dionysus. Can you imagine that? That'd be like San Francisco saying, look, things are getting a little bit messed up in the morality of our nation. We've got to pull back a little bit here. It'd be like Rome. I mean, Rome is not known for its morality. But Rome recognized that the worship of Dionysus was so bad, so dangerous to a culture that they actually sort of said, we shouldn't be doing this anymore. And so what was going on with regard to this, as people were getting drunk, as people were basically engaging all sorts of illicit uh, affair of sex, sexual encounters, what the idea was, you're joyful. You got a lot of joy. And uh, Dionysus, Bacchus, is... Making good on his promise to deliver joy to those that worship Dionysus. This could be a viable idea or hint in the text that would lead us to believe that perhaps this was Satan's throne. We're going to see in just a moment here, there's really strong ideas leaning to this concept of Dionysus' worship in the text, which we'll look at in just a moment here. The next slide, which we'll also see, is another uh, goddess that was worshipped there. Her name was Demeter. Demeter literally means mother goddess or mother earth. Uh, we kind of have her recognized today as like Gaius, the worship of the mother earth. Any type of form of worshiping the earth is sort of traced back to the worship of Demeter. Um, and it also fails really at kind of its roots to make a very strong distinguishing mark between a creator God and his creation. So when people worship uh, the earth, or when people worship um, Different types of forms of earth worship is kind of worshiping Demeter. So here's what's going on. Really, in, 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 in short of it, Demeter was the grocery goddess. So oftentimes she was worshipped by the lower class. In fact, basic uh, in, in uh, ancient culture, there was really not much of a middle class. You either had very, very wealthy people or you had those that were slaves and on the very low end of the social economic scale. Those people that had no money... They would oftentimes pray and offer sacrifice to Demeter so that Demeter would provide them their daily bread. So Bacchus, uh, Dionysus, they would pray to for joy. They would look to him for joy. Demeter, they would oftentimes pray and bring sacrifice and give their tribute and their money to Demeter for daily bread. That could also be another hint in the text that has to do, because I would even uh, add that towards the end of the text, we're going to also see sort of a hint, perhaps, of the worship of Demeter in the text. We'll look at that in a moment here. And then take a look at the next slide. And what we're going to see here is perhaps it could also have to do with this worship of this god named Asclepius. Asclepius was one of the main deities that was actually worshipped in the city of Pergamum. If you notice, he's carrying a pole, and around that pole was a snake. Now, Asclepius was actually the son of Apollo, um, and according to the, to the history. And he was essentially the very first physician that was able to cure people or heal people from various types of forms of sicknesses or disease. 
And so people would come to him and pray to him and worship him, and then he would in turn give them healing for their devotion, their worship, and their tribute. And his symbol was that of a pole and with a snake on the pole. So people would literally actually pray to a serpent or look to a serpent to bring healing. So you can imagine, here you are, a Christian, living for a century in the city, and especially if you have any type of Jewish background, when you think of a snake or a serpent, you go back immediately to the garden. You think serpents uh, usually represent not healing and benefit and blessing, but actually ben- uh, you know, identify a curse. And so you can imagine if you're a Christian first century, you're living in the city of Pergamum, and you're seeing everybody worship these snakes and pray to Asclepios, you're like, gosh, this is like satanic, this is bad. So that could also be another hint as to what's going on there. But I want to tell you a little bit about how people would worship Asclepius. Typically what they would do is they would go to the temple, they would have different types of maladies or sicknesses, whatever they were. Some of them were just sort of psychosomatic, some of them were just actual real life type of issues that were going on. So they would go to the priest, and they would pay their tribute to the priest, they would give certain amounts of money, and what the priest would do then is he would direct them into a, a, an underground chamber. They would, they would walk underground to this particular area, into this very large room, probably about the size of this room. It was sort of this underground room. It was large. It was echoey. It probably smelled like mildew uh, and mushrooms. And, you know, it was, just this, I, it was just this place where people would go and hang out. For some reason, I just had a flashback of elf in my mind. And that's why I said mushroom. And what happens is here they are underground, and they're basically about ready to worship Asclepios. And what they would do as they would exchange money to the priests of Asclepios, the priests would then give sort of a potion or some sort of a drug or a narcotic to them. They would drink it, and they would basically get high. And here they are underground. There's not a lot of oxygen under there, and what oxygen there is, it stinks. And what they do is they end up sort of passing out. They sleep, they take a nap, whatever the case is. But they're high on this drug. And it was actually kind of a known thing sort of years after that what was really going on was the priest would walk up to people and prior to them going out, the priest would say, listen, as soon as I give you this narcotic and you go underground, I want you to sleep. And when you sleep, you're going to get a vision. And the vision that you're going to get is a vision from Asclepius. And he's going to tell you what you need to do to get made whole. And sometimes the uh, remedies would be- vary from, you know, paying large sums of money or, you know, donating goats or oxen or sitting in a big mud bath that obviously there's a fee attached to it or taking a bath in sort of the uh, fountains of Asclepius. Um, and obviously everything has a price tag to it. So here's what they actually found out later is that when people were sort of in this kind of drugged out, narcotic type state, um, totally passed out, underground, breathing really, you know, foul air, these priests would actually walk up to him and kind of whisper in there, and they'd be like, here's a vision. Give 20 oxen, right? So then the guy wakes up, and he goes to the priest, and he's like, I had a vision. Asclepius came to me, and he told me that I'm to do- donate a 20 oxen to you. And the guy's like, okay, great, 20 oxen, give them down. And so what would happen is after that, he would then go and continue to worship, sometimes whatever the uh, relief was, you know, again, washing off in a mud bath. Then afterwards, he would go out into the very large garden, and in the garden was this large statue to Asclepius, and uh, he was sitting on this very large box that had these snakes on it. So he would bow down, he'd pay tribute, give money to the statue of Asclepius, and standing directly behind Asclepius were his two daughters, statues of his two daughters. His two daughters were Hygieia and Panacea. Hygieia was the goddess of um, basically good health. Panacea was the goddess of uh, help in pain, in the midst of pain. So if you were having going, going through great pain, you'd pray to Asclepius' daughter, Panacea, and hopefully she would give you relief from your pain. If you, were, if you smelled bad and you didn't take showers, you'd pray to Hygieia. She'd give you direction as to how to become clean, and obviously cleanliness would lead to perhaps better health. So the point that I want to make with this is that after somebody would be healed, as they would walk out, and as they would claim basically their healing, they would walk out into sort of this very long corridor uh, in kind of a garden area, and there'd be these very large stones. And on these stones would be all the names of all of the people that had been healed by Asclepius. So if you're healed, then you would have your name carved into the stone, and it would basically say your name, and then also say what you were healed from, or what Asclepius healed you from. I think this also plays in the text, which we'll look at in a minute here. 
But what you'll find basically is this. Is again, like Demeter, you pray to her and she gives you food. Like Dionysus, uh, you, you pray, I'm sorry, Demeter, you pray to him and he gives you food. You pray to uh, Dionysus, you pray and then you will get joy. Like Zeus, who's sort of this overarching godfather type thing, overlooking everything. Like also to, you pray to Asclepius and he gives you healing. These are sort of the culture in which people lived in. So you'd imagine first century Christians were obviously tempted or at least confused as to what was going on. There were all these voices coming to them saying, this is where you find joy. This is where you find healing. This is how you get daily bread taken care of on your plate. You pray to these gods and it will happen. And some of those, all of those, perhaps could be identifications to Satan's throne. Here's one last thing that I want to look at that perhaps could be an indicator to Satan's throne. As I mentioned already earlier, that this is sort of the capital city of all of Asia Minor, or it's Rome's representation of their power and their authority over there in the east. And that being said, what you end up having is sort of the center, one of the centers of the imperial cult worship. And basically this looked something like this. You would have a big statue that was uh, erected and it identified whatever Caesar, whatever ruler or leader was in control or in power in that particular time. And people would recognize that particular Caesar as their god and as their king. Literally, those would be the words that they would use. Caesar is my God and my king. So that, that's another issue that was going on. But even further than that, the way that they would have viewed Caesar or Rome in a very general sense is one of the major promises that Rome claimed was they promised that we would give peace. It's called the Pax Romana. That they came to give peace. Rome's whole point was, we're not here to bring sword. We're not Alexander the Great. We're not here to just conquer or destroy you. We're not like him. But we're here to give peace. That was Rome's claim. Pax Romana. The peace of Rome. So here's the idea behind imperial cult worship. That the source of all peace in all of the world comes from the hand of Caesar. Who is our God and our King. This is what was happening first century. This is what was really the typical day in life of people living in the city of Pergamum. So you can imagine, here you are a Christian, and in reality what you're being told by your Bible and by stories that you hear basically that are being passed down, is that everything you hear from the gospel actually conflicts with the culture that's constantly pushing this stuff on you. Is this making sense? So the idea that peace comes from Caesar is challenged with the idea that peace actually comes from God. He's our peace. Jesus is our peace. He is the true peace. That our daily bread doesn't come from Demeter. It comes from the hand of our God. So what I want you to see is this. Here's my thought. This is what I think the idea behind this concept of you live where Satan dwells is all about is that you are living in a place where on every street corner, every place where your eye looks, is this temptation to find peace, to find help, to find strength, to find joy, to find life outside of God. That's the idea. So here's the deal. Is that if we, we live in a culture that tells us one of two things, that either A, peace and joy and life is found in you. You just got to look in yourself. You got to dig deep. You got to somehow unlock the hidden potential that's in there. And then somehow once you unlock that, then you too will also have joy. You will have this peace. You will have all the things that you need that are essential to help live so that you can provide bread for yourself, to have health. It's all inside you. Or we are also told in our culture that it's provided outside of us. It has a label on it. I mean, if you, you know, are lacking food, then you just go to whatever grocery store has the best sales. And that's why everybody's fighting on the news or, you know, on, on the television in terms of like Vaughn's is better deals. Now, Albertson's, it's the idea that, no, no, our temple, our temple is actually better than the temple on the street. Come to us. We'll supply all your needs. We'll take care of you. And here's the deal. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with, you know, don't, the, the point is this, our food 
our source of substance and sustenance comes from the hand of God. Now, God might use a store to provide that. God may use a middle person to supply that and take care of that. But at the end of the day, Christians identify and they recognize the fact that all that we have does not come from these means. They come from God. And when we buy into the notion, when we buy into the idea that life, joy, healing, help, safety, all of these things can somehow be attained, obtained by looking in or looking outside anywhere other than God, then we literally buy into this concept that Jesus, I think, is saying has its source in a satanic mindset. Does this make sense? This is what's happening here, I think, in the church in Pergamum. They live in a very large city, but the Christians there are being tempted to go outside of God, to look beyond Christ, to perhaps tap into self, to somehow obtain all these things that are massive necessities within their life. And what I think Jesus is trying to say to them is be careful, don't do that. When you do that, you're actually not finding life, you're actually losing life. Because you are tapping into things that cannot, at the end of the day, completely and faithfully deliver to you what they promise to deliver to you. Does that make sense? And I think that's what Jesus is saying to this church living in Pergamum. In a lot of ways, it's very similar to the culture in which we live in, isn't it? I mean, I mean, in some way you can say that we live in a culture that is, in a lot of ways, Satan's throne. We live in a place, live in a culture, meaning that there's always statements coming to us saying, if you do this, if you go here, if you devote yourself and your time and your energy and your money here, then you will have joy. See, we don't have temples anymore of Dionysus. We don't go to these little places and hang out and you know, worship at the feet of Dionysus. What we have today is we call them bars. All right, we go to bars. We pay our tithe money, we sit there for hours and we worship and we get drunk. Because we hope at some point we're gonna get joy. Maybe we'll hook up, maybe you meet a boyfriend or a girlfriend or go out and have a one night stand and we'll have joy. You see what I'm saying? The culture is not that much dissimilar to what it was way back then. We, honestly, at the end of the day, we're just not as honest as first century people were. At least first century people said, we're worshiping. We have gods. We bow our knee to them. Our culture, we deny that. We say, we don't worship. We just get drunk. You know, we don't worship. We don't worship Asclepius. But we do spend a lot of money going to Kennedy, spending a lot of money doing all sorts of alternative types of medicines or real types of medicines so that somehow we can build up a knowledge in our own selves so that we can have everlasting health forever. And what I'm saying is this. Don't misunderstand me because honestly, some Christians take this to an extreme, which I just think is simply obscene and just ridiculous. To the point of being like, ah, we don't go to doctors because we just pray. That's really silly to be really frank with you. If that's your conviction, send me an email. But my point is this, all right? A Christian recognizes where healing comes from. I mean, it doesn't mean that we can't work out or can't spend money at Kennedy or we can't go to the doctor. We can. In fact, Christians are the freest to be able to do that. But here's the deal. Christians do it in a way where they recognize God gives me the strength to work out. God gives wisdom to this doctor to heal me. God is the one at the end of the day who provides everything to help me, to strengthen me, to keep me healthy. It's the hand of God, not Asclepius, and not wisdom, but God. And we have to be careful because otherwise what ends up happening is we become sort of people that devote ourselves to false little pagan idols, little things, with the hope and anticipation that they will deliver. And they never deliver. Everybody who worshiped that Asclepius is dead. Everybody. Like one out of one died. I mean, those are pretty, I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's just like you, those odds are pretty high. So it's like you, you, you don't want to devote yourself to something that cannot promise life in and of itself. So what I want to do now is I want to basically begin to jump into the text and I want to really kind of read through this and try to understand this in light of the context of what we had just simply read. 
Chapter 2, verse 12 says this. To the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I think what Jesus is trying to say here is that you think your leader over Pergamum has a sharp two-edged sword. I think Jesus is trying to set a proper perspective and say, no, I have the sharp two-edged sword. Justice actually comes from my hand, not from his hand. And if he has a sword in his hand, it's a sword that I've given to him. I think that's Jesus' point. Again, it's not simply looking at our government or our culture. Some people have imbalanced views of this. They're like, you know, everything in this culture is bad. Government's bad. I mean, do you realize that government itself is a gift from God? God gives us government. And yet there might be things that are a little bit corrupt and problems that need to be worked through. But the bottom line is this, is that it's God who has the sword and God oftentimes gives that sword to other people to execute justice. But Jesus is trying to remind them again, it's not your emperor or your leader over the city of Pergamum that has ultimate ability to execute justice. It's me. I have the sharp two-edged sword. Then he goes on and says, these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith. So he commends them. He says, even though you live here, you've still held on to my name. You've still trusted me. I think the temptation to uh, steer away from Jesus was very profound and very strong. Yet at the end of the day, Jesus commends him. He says, you guys have held fast to my name. Then he goes on. He says, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. We don't know anything about this guy Antipas at all other than what it says right here. A lot of scholars try to figure stuff out, but we just really have, have any idea. Whoever it is, this guy died. He died. Uh, perhaps something of a clue might be found in the text. The name Antipas, literally in the Greek, comes from two Greek words. Anti, which means against, and pas means everything. This guy Antipas was a fundamentalist, Bible-believing Christian, all right? And he was just like, I'm against Zeus and Demeter and Dionysus and the emperor cult and they're like, you're going to die then, all right? He dies. And Jesus, the, even though the world looks at Antipas and says, this guy is against everything. He is a problem in our culture, in our society. But get this, Jesus says, he's my faithful witness. You guys got to hear this because some of us, we might hear this and we might be like, man, to live in a way that runs counterculture, that runs uh, against the culture in such a way, or at least creates a new culture, may be viewed in this world as a troublemaker, may be viewed as a problem type of a person, but in reality, what matters at the end of the day is not what culture and society thinks about you, but what God thinks about you. You gotta hear that. Because some of us have not gotten this straight. We're still trying to find our identity and what other people think about us. And this is probably one of the main reasons or main uh, impetuses in which we are driven to somehow continue to please other people. I mean, especially if you're young, especially if you're young, where you're in an environment where it's constantly just toxic and people are trying to just get you to do things so that you belong. And the mentality can oftentimes be in terms of if I don't give in, if I don't give some leeway of whatever things that maybe I've grown up knowing or whatever things I believe now in Christ, then I will be viewed with in, in poor light. Please hear me. What matters most is not the opinion of somebody who is mortal. But what matters most is the opinion of him who is immortal. You've got to hear that and understand that at the end of the day, the only opinion that matters most is Jesus's. And he looks at this guy, Antipas, who ends up dying for his faith. Jesus says, he was my faithful witness who died for me. He goes on to say, verse 14, but I have a few things that are against you. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food that's sacrificed to idols, idols and practice sexual immorality. I think this is a little bit of a clue and a hint in terms of the worship of Dionysius. The food that's offered to idols, this no doubt was a part of a regular practice that was going on in the cult of Dionysius, but also the sexual immorality part. That was, again, no doubt what was also part of the practice of Dionysius. But he makes mention of this guy named Balaam. Now, what happens is in the Old Testament, in a book called Numbers, chapter 22, there's a story about this guy named Balaam. 
And there's another guy named Balak. Balak is a king. And Balak is a guy who oversees a very large group of people living out in the wilderness, out in the desert area of Israel. But he hears word that there's this massive uh, tribe of people called the Israelites that are moving into his territory. And he's really nervous because what he hears, the rumors that are kind of circulating that are going around, is that this group of people called the Israelites are pretty powerful, or at least their God is pretty powerful. And he destroys anybody that's in their way. So Balak, being a good politician, he's just like, i got to figure out something. So what he does, he opens up the yellow pages, he looks under F, and he finds false prophet. He finds this guy by the name of Balaam. Calls him up, he says, listen, I need you to do me a favor. Pays him, as soon as the money's in his Swiss bank account, he opens up his laptop, realizes it's in there. Balaam comes on the scene, he's like, listen, here's the reality. I can't curse these people. I can't curse these people because they're blessed. God's blessed them. So there's no way I can, you know, as, as just a mere man, I can't, I can't say something that's going to undo what God does. So the, basically, the way the story ends up sort of evolving and moving forward, kind of its trajectory, is what ends up happening is Balaam kind of gives him this recipe for disaster. He's like, here's the deal. I can't curse him, but what you can do is if you bring your women, the best looking women of your tribe, down to the watering hole, at the same time the Jewish guys are going to be hanging out down the watering hole, your, the Jewish guys are going to see your most beautiful women that are going to be seducing them, and what ends up happening then is these guys are going to end up falling for the women and they're going to want to intermarry, want to have sex, want to be sexually illicit with these people. And what will end up happening is they'll start worshiping the gods of these women of your people. And that's exactly what ends up happening. So what takes place is the whole of Israel begins to fall, follow after the gods of Balak that was basically led astray by putting a stumbling block in front of these people. So what's kind of an interesting thing that's going on here is in the text, in the story, is Jesus says, there are those among you that are actually tempting people saying, it's okay. Don't worry about it. It's no big deal. They're actually putting stumbling blocks. They're putting types of activity in front of other believers' lives so that they stumble. And when they stumble, they fall. And when they fall, they find themselves feeling distant from God and probably needing to be corrected by God. So here's what he's basically saying. There are those in the church that really somehow have begun to value their liberties, have begun to value their sense of just acceptance of everything over loving God. And the problem is, is it's leading down to a path in which this church in Pergamos is beginning to compromise. It's beginning to lose its power and its strength and its might. And really at the end of the day, they're turning to alternatives in order to try to find life in which God himself is the genuine article, in which everything else is nothing more than a counterfeit. So here's what he goes on to say after that. He says, and you also have those who practice the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now to the church of Ephesus, he says, you guys hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus is like, I hate those things too. So good job. But here, Jesus is basically writing these guys. He's like, look, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And you got some of those people that are in your midst that are cool with it. That's not cool with me. You know, it's funny because some of those people think, you know, being a Christian, like you shouldn't hate. But the reality is there are things that Jesus hates. If you're a Christian, it's okay to hate those things that Jesus hates hate. You say, well, what about cults? What about people that lie to people? It's okay to hate when people lie to people. We hate lies. The reason why we hate lies is because what ends up happening is when people believe a lie, then they find their lives being destroyed. So we hate it when people are lied to. You understand what we're saying? We hate concepts or false teachings that create sort of this an, an evil lifestyle. We hate those things because Jesus hates those things. Now, this doesn't mean, I think sometimes even within the Christian church, especially in staunch, hardcore fundamentalist type churches, they sit around like a little kind of circle and be like, let's vote on everything that we think Jesus hates. Well, we think Jesus hates cigarettes. So let's make that something that we hate. And we'll just despise everybody who smokes a cigarette. And there's all these types of rules and regulations that people love to kind of figure out. Like, well, we think Jesus hates, you know, eyeliner. Well, well, we should hate eyeliner too. We think Jesus loves buns and women's hair. And we, we, you, know, that, you know what I'm saying? My point is this. Is, is it gets absolutely ridiculous the way 
Christians can sometimes think about like what Jesus hates and what he loves. My point is this, just stick to the text. If it's in the Bible, great. If it's not in the Bible, you're probably on a pretty bad footing, all right? Just pull back, recognize the legalism in your life, repent of it, Jesus will receive you. And what ends up happening here in this church is he says, you guys have the deeds of the Nicolaitans. I hate those things. Finishes up with this, verse 16. He says, therefore repent, and if not, I will come to you soon, and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus' whole point is, like, look, at the end of the day, I, just, I want you to turn from these things. When you read the word repent, don't read it with anger. I mean, don't read it like Jesus is like ticked. I mean, he might be bummed, he might be upset, but it's the heart of the Father that's basically saying, just repent, turn, turn from these things. Because the path that you're on is destructive. The path that you're on does not fulfill. The path that you're on does not give what it promises. So turn from it. Turn back to me. Turn back to my ways. Follow me. Love what I love. Hate what I hate. That's Jesus' whole point. He says, if you don't, if you don't, what will end up happening is I will war against you with the sword of my mouth. He gets very stern. Verse 17, he says this. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I think this right here is a complete slam against Demeter. It's like Jesus saying, look, Demeter's not the one who gives bread. I give bread. I give bread. Don't you forget where bread comes from. It comes from my hand. And Jesus is like, look, if you succeed, if you overcome, if you fight against the temptations to bring the sacrifices to Demeter, to bow down at her altar, he says, if you do that, remember, I will provide the bread from heaven, just like I did Back in the Old Testament with the children of Israel, I gave them manna, this bread from heaven. And then he goes on to also say, he says, and I will also give to him a white stone. And he says, and I will also have on his name, uh, on that stone, a name that no one knows except him who receives it. I think this is an indication of probably the worship to Asclepius. And so after you were healed, you would go put your name and have it carved onto this white stone. I think what Jesus is trying to say here is he's taking very practical issues that were going on within the church, within the arena in which they were living, and he's saying, listen, overcome. Don't succumb to the things of the world around you. Don't give in. Don't capitulate to the types of worship and the types of promises that are empty around you. Here's a question that I want to ask you. Do you have what it takes to identify the various idols that our culture bends down to? I mean, do, you, do you know what they are? Do you see them? Do you see where, they are, where they're at? Do you see, I mean, we live in a college town. And I think, I'll give you one example. I think one of the biggest idols that we can definitely bow down to is this hope that by getting an education, somehow that will save us. It will save us. Good education equals a good job. Good job means we will be saved from having lousy health insurance we will be saved from having to live in the ghetto. We will be saved from having to eat top ramen the rest of our life. We will be saved and we will live in a paradise. We'll have a nice house. We'll have great health care. That will be our savior. There's nothing wrong with going to college. College is awesome. It's awesome. Having a good job is great. But at the end of the day, the whole challenge for us, if you're a believer, is to understand where the benefits come from, where the bread comes from, where the healing comes from. It comes not from Asclepius, it comes not from Demeter, not from Zeus, and the peace doesn't come from Caesar, it all comes from the hand of God. That's the message to the church in Pergamos, is we are very prone to forget it. We're very prone to just somehow lose sight of it because we are bombarded by information nonstop all around us, giving us false promises that should we believe it, should we invest in it, should we buy it, we'll lose the pounds, we'll gain the energy, we'll have the sex drive, our libido will be pumped up, we'll have a degree, we'll have more knowledge, we'll have more money, we'll have more time, we'll have more peace. I think the message that Jesus would say to us as a church, don't buy it. They don't fulfill, but I do. The challenge for us is to have the boldness to understand and to identify what are those idols that are constantly calling us, constantly flashing us down, constantly saying, devote your time, devote your energy, tithe, 
Give your strength. Give your time. Sacrifice to me. To be able to have the boldness and say, you know what? Jesus is where every good gift comes from. Everything else, Jesus just uses. He just uses. He uses school in my life to get me an education. He, he, he uses wine. So when I drink it, I, I can enjoy Jesus. He's a good God who gives us fruit from the grape. He's a wonderful God. Not to get drunk, not to abuse it, not to somehow be as some sort of a means of kind of an alternative uh, stimulus to make us joyful, but every good gift comes from God. But there are always those temptations to abuse it. There's always those temptations to bow down to all these other things as God. At the end of the day, I want you to see Jesus and see what he offers. Jesus is our peace, not Caesar. Jesus provides our bread, not Demeter. Jesus is our healer, not Asclepius. It's Jesus. Everything God does is through Jesus. This church was in grave danger of forgetting that. I believe if we're not careful, we too are in grave danger of forgetting that. We're going to worship. We're going to sing. We're going to have the worship team come on up. And what I want to finish with is, is this thought. All of us, all of us are worshipers. All of us. We all worship. We will worship either God and devote our energy and our strength to him. And our, our energy, the, the, what we have, we will devote it to God. We'll thank him with every bit of strength that we have. Because we love him. We recognize that every good gift comes from God. Our ability to think, our ability to get good grades, our ability to have you know, kids that bring joy into our lives. All of that is a gift that comes from our benevolent father. Or we will pursue these False gods, chasing false promises. But know this, they will let you down. They cannot deliver. They will not deliver. And then where do you turn? This is why people who worship false gods, false idols, when their God fails, they want to end their life. That's why it's over. That's why sometimes people struggle so oftentimes with meaninglessness in this life. Because... I devoted energy, time, money, strength, made sacrifice so that this God would give me what I hoped it would give. But at the end of the day, that God took from you. Jesus represents the Father who doesn't take, but gives. Idols take. God gives. He gives life. We're going to worship. We're going to sing songs to God. We're going to give our tithes and our offerings to God.